Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin on this fine Friday. Hope you're all doing well so far. I see a bunch of regulars in here. Great to see you guys. I'm going to kick it off by asking you guys to guess how Bitcoin came up in my hockey skate last night in New York City. Someone brought up Bitcoin to me in a recent news story. I'm going to ask you guys to guess which news story was it that they brought up. Uh, Titanic submarine. Is that is that one related to Bitcoin somehow? No, I just thought maybe they weaved it in, you know, somehow. Like it was not it was not the Titanic submarine. Bitcoin is dead. They they have they did not say that one. And you got a guess? Coinbase. All right, I will, I will give it up. It was the, <clears throat> I, I assume most of you probably saw this if you were on Twitter in the last 48 hours, but it was the New York City, some sort of bathhouse was heating its pools with Bitcoin miners. And, and there were some pretty hilarious comments from people who did not know it, what that really meant. They were like concerned, but not even sure what they were concerned about. So that's the kind of Bitcoin news that made it into the, the non-Bitcoin world, and, and they, they asked me about it. They, want, they all wanted to get my thoughts. What hey, was we'll your take, answer? We'll take it however we can get in. Yeah, I want to know what your answer was. <laughs> yeah, how did you answer? So yeah, I, I an did... expert on uh, Bitcoin, not bathhouses, I assume. Yeah, Terrence, I think I saw a tweet of yours that I laughed at, which said we need an expert on Bitcoin and bathhouses to, to unpack all of this. Um, that would be that would be Hoddle Magoo. <laughs> so what I did end up looking at it, I think I saw it was Joe Weisenthal who originally tweeted it and he's had some screenshots of what the people were saying. And my my favorite one was someone who said, This makes me like Bathhouse less. I think the place is actually called Bathhouse. Uh, now I'm concerned about who is mining this cryptocurrency, who is profiting from it. And whether I support that, we're going to need some transparency. <laughs> I just reread that and I thought it was hilarious. I, she's, she, uh, the things she listed that she's concerned about, she is concerned about whether she supports that. <laughs> I guess, you know, you could just write, I'm confused and I don't understand this, but uh, I guess just coming out and hating it is, is you know, more fashionable. Is, is that how you um, I, yeah, I just kind of laughed at it and I was like, uh, we, we didn't really get into it. 
uh, like the mechanics of Bitcoin mining and how it gives off heat and it can be a profitable, efficient way to use the excess heat. Um, more so the fact that it's in New York, I might check it out. Uh, but yeah, we, did, we didn't really get into it too much. Sure, some of these concerned people were stepping over a homeless person to get to the bathhouse. Very, very upset about the heating methodology used you know, for their for their soap. You know, you know, Dom, that that is that is so exactly correct. Kind of like the five billionaires or millionaires or whatever they were that were in the sub that imploded. And at the same time, there's a uh, uh, a vessel with 750 refugees that capsizes um, off the coast of, of Greece. Yeah, I saw that the onion capitalized on some stuff and, and I, the onion kind of went, yeah, they went hard on this one. Um, but yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, as you can imagine, the uh, the Titanic submarine was a big topic. I, I will be honest, I kind of stayed out of that one, which I know seems like an impossibility to most most people, probably. But um, there were other things that were. Oh man, I would have jumped in there, John. I would have said Bitcoin fixes this. That would have started a conversation. <laughs> Where does that conversation go? Well, Bitcoin fixes this because number one, no one's going to get into a sub that. Uh, uh, has has a history of uh, safety uh, uh, violations and issues. Uh, number one and number two, uh, the the cantillionaires that uh, that that do things like that, like like go up into space and and go down on subs and do that kind of thing. Um, they're probably not going to. They're probably going to think twice about about spending their their sats to do something like that versus um, you know spending uh, worthless U.S. cuck bucks uh, to do the same kind of thing where where they know that those cuck bucks can just be easily replaced, uh, not a problem. I've I've got an edge. I can game the system, et cetera, et cetera. Or how, how, Peter, how about the, the motivation by the guy running that was running the project um, to not want the best people on the team that are fit for the job? They're the people that he uh, he was suggesting were inspiring or sold a particular story to make it exciting. Like, you, <laughs> if you're trying to actually accomplish things of merit and of value, you want the best of the best that you can afford, not people that are going to echo some fantasy or some dream irregardless of the reality of like the world that you occupy like I just I know I'm laughing but and it's a very grim situation but it's just like you this should be a prime example of like individuals that are trying to lead something like that are more dangerous than they are like a, a benefit to society in my opinion and that might be a bit of a contrarian take and it's a little bit of a fresh wound for those that are involved but like they they took up a um unnecessary amount of risk by going but, down but Mike, with that guy. Mike, do we really do we really feel that sorry for these individuals who took that risk versus versus the 750 refugees? I mean the the US Navy, the 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 Coast Guard, God knows who else got involved with this search for these for these people. Um, which, you know, granted, they, 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 they should be searching for these people. But at the same time, how many of those 750 refugees off the coast of Greece 
that that were packed onto a ship that capsized how many of them were 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 killed and 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 what was the response to that probably you know one uh uh um one greek coast guard ship uh, went out and tried to do something i mean the the upside down and backwards kinds of of um conditioning that we get because of the media, you know, the media gloms onto this. Oh, you know, this, this, this billionaire is lost at sea. It's like, man, get the story right. Why are these 750 refugees willing to rest their, risk their lives to get to Greece? That's the real story. I agree. Peter, they don't come on. No one reads factual stories with, with like inspiring information to change the bitcoin, world. Bitcoin, bitcoin solves this though because bitcoiners, you know, that's what bitcoiners do. Bitcoiners look at things critically. They don't just take things on face value. They drill down, they follow the money. They want to know what the real story is. They have they have a curiosity. Uh they 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 think critically and and when you when you have a societal shift in that direction, it benefits everybody. Yeah, so I, I obviously agree with all that, Peter. Um, I think Bitcoin fixes a lot of things. I think it brings about a much more sane, prudent, future-oriented society in a good way. Um, I do believe people will do stupid shit uh, no matter what, you know, especially <laughs> Amen to that. people of certain ages. I think, you know, generally speaking, younger males will probably always do stupid shit. I know I did when I was, you know, 16 to... 20 something but uh yeah I, I agree with your broader point peter that i think we see less of it and more prudence and logic and future-oriented behavior on a bitcoin standard hey speaking of things that are not stupid but incredibly important and incredibly relevant shout out to waldo stack joiner who confirmed i was the first in the room this morning that's it y'all <laughs> I'm not saying anything for the rest of the session. My my work is done here. <laughs> Box is checked. Um, I want that's, to shout that's out. My, uh, that's my that's my stack chain peeps right there. That's my stack chain peeps. <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, I want to shout out Proof of Ink. Um, what's up, man? I think I think you have some sort of new consensus mechanism, new blockchain Proof of Ink that you want to chat about today. Can't wait to hear about it. Sure. Yeah, we're stacking shirts. So proof of ink is uh, screen printing for Bitcoin only. Do uh, limited print artist designs and uh, wholesale to business, to uh, Bitcoin companies that are looking for um, you know shirts for any conference or festival or giveaways. So that's it. Very very cool. How long you been doing this? Since February, I um I. Fell down the rabbit hole hard. Attended a PB last year. Saw what a you know the circular economy could be. And um, yeah, I did 20 years in the army, 10 years as a defense contractor. And as I uh, kind of examined my life, I had to get out of it. It was just a um, complete waste for me. So yeah, I moved over to this, and now uh, I'm doing something in the Bitcoin space, which is really exciting and uh, very rewarding. John's a very John's a very humble guy, and he actually quit his job so that he could move his four hundred one k into Bitcoin. I mean, this dude is a this dude is a hardcore Bitcoiner, hardcore stack chainer. 
I've I've known him uh, uh, since I since I joined Stack Chain and um, uh, super super honest, honorable guy, and really epitomizes kind of uh, you know this this new this new kind of Bitcoin mentality and ethos that uh, we all talk about. I oh, think I appreciate that. Yeah, that was great. And did I hear you are going to be at uh, mass adoption in Boston? That's correct. I'm, uh, I'm very excited for it. That'll be my first time both um, at a conference as Proof of Ink, as well as I'll be live printing a special edition shirt for the festival. I'll get that up in less than a minute. Very cool, man. Well, thanks for sharing that. For anyone out there who's going to Boston this weekend, keep an eye out for Proof of Ink. Uh, check out the the shirts and the the ink that he's going to be putting together. I'm sure it's good stuff, I, and I look forward to seeing it at some point at a uh, Bitcoin conference soon. Thanks, appreciate it. Thanks for having me up. Yeah, man. Yeah, chime in with anything else you want to while you're here. Okay, what what else? Um, you know, a couple of things for me. I feel like the big story is uh, institutional involvement in Bitcoin lately. Uh, you know, what, from, from a few different angles, whether it's the ETF filings, um, whether it's some of the TradFi firms that are uh, getting into Bitcoin from uh, like in a research perspective, Banco Santander was putting some, together some research. Uh, there was another firm that's escaping me now that said they would do Bitcoin custody, a TradFi firm. So what do people think? Is this institutions truly getting into Bitcoin? Is it just a fad that they're going to drop it when it's convenient to drop it? Uh, who's got some hot takes on this one? I think, honestly, um, when I see these institutions getting involved, I think, like, let's just talk about the elephant in the room, I guess, as far as, like, BlackRock, because they're the ones that kind of, like, seem like they've sparked a significant amount of this wave of interest with this ETF filing. Um, I think that there is definitely a, a significant push for these guys to kind of, like, coming around to accepting that Bitcoin is pretty inevitable as far as like having staying power, like Lindy effect, like many of us have talked about. Um, and, but I think, I think I'm a little bit more biased in my take. I think that what's really driving a lot of these um, institutional thinkers and kind of more fiat minded individuals being interested in Bitcoin, I I really do think that it's more of the, relationship with the energy firms that is kind of cementing the the staying power for the in these people's minds um just because of the value that like bitcoin mining does provide i guess you could use the example of like grid balancing like it's been going on in texas like we've seen uh the bloomberg report um earlier this week how bitcoin miners have been shutting off in texas because of this early heat wave uh in order to protect the grid um and allow people to keep their air conditioners on. I think that there's that relationship, but then also the relationship that Bitcoin mining is providing for flare gas solutions and allowing of spooling up new nuclear projects. Um, I think that that might personally be what is 
inspiring them to get a little bit more involved in the asset because I think a lot of us have talked about how you know hash rate kind of tends to seems to tends to lead um, lead price action. So if the hash rate chart is any sort of example, I think that this bull run is going to be particularly exciting. And I think that coming around to that understanding, a lot of these institutional money managers are going to be thinking about that and seeing that. And then they're like, okay, they're they're really like, I think we all agree. They're really just trying to capitalize off of the future FOMO and the hype that's coming forward. I'm going to take the opposing view. I'm going to say that the kingmaker has an ego, Larry Fink. He's watched uh, Elizabeth Warren not be able to make any inroads into into uh, Bitcoin. He's watched the Chinese government not be able to make any inroads into Bitcoin as far as getting rid of it. Um, and I think his whole thing is, OK, step aside. The kingmaker's here. I'm going to come in and I'm going to show these these hoodie wearing super coders what the fuck is real in this world. Um, and uh, I'm going to make some money along the way. That's what I think he thinks he's going to do. And I think his ego is going to drive him to do that. Um, but I think he's going to be unpleasantly or pleasantly surprised uh, when he uh, falls down the rabbit hole and he realizes that uh, what he's gotten himself into is, is beyond his ability to control. That's what I really think. I really think that this guy thinks he's going to come in here and he's going to uh, corner this market. Good luck, GG. We'll see what happens, right? Yeah, I, and I have a hard time seeing it get to that point. I mean, it, we would ha it would have to be there would have to be such a large preference by people actually choosing to use the you know whatever you want to call it the BlackRock Bitcoin, the ESG Bitcoin, the Green Bitcoin, whatever they try to turn it into. There would have to be such a large preference for people to use that instead of actual Bitcoin or, you know, whatever, Bitcoin plus Lightning, another layer on top of it. Uh, I, I think they might get, you know, significant size and, and pools of assets that use it. But uh, in terms of getting so large that they can actually dictate uh, how things go on the network or try to hard fork successfully, I have a hard time seeing that being the case. Yeah, don't get me wrong, John. I, I don't think he's going to succeed. And I don't think he even knows, you know, I, I don't even think he, he realizes that what it is that he's getting into. I'm just saying, I'm, I think that that is, is his mentality. He's, I'm the kingmaker and I can do this. You know, nobody else has been successful. A step aside, the kingmaker's here. So it's possible. There's a non-zero risk. I'm going to say it's highly unlikely. His reputation and his behavior uh, on Wall Street was someone who is highly confident, but not arrogant. So, for example, around the 2008 financial crisis, uh, Morgan Stanley was looking for a new CEO. They approached Larry Fink, and Larry Fink said, why the fuck, basically, are you not? talking to John Mack, your former president, that is, who is beloved, beloved at Morgan Stanley. He lost a political, John Mack lost a political battle to Phil Purcell during the uh, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter discover kind of merger. 
but um, so the, the board went back and it's like, okay, we'll talk to John Mack. And it turned out people at Morgan Stanley still love John Mack. So he could have been CEO of Morgan Stanley, a much arguably bigger and more important firm, at least back then. So I don't think it's his ego. Um, I think his reputation, that's all relative, right? Just like the US dollar is a shit coin, uh, but it's the least worst shit coin or sh shit uh, fiat. BlackRock is from Wall Street, but among Wall Street kind of financial, tra traditional finance entities, they're highly credible. He is not at all perceived as arrogant. I've never heard anyone say that. I could be wrong, could be an act, but I just don't see it. Yeah, so Mike mentioned uh, energy, um, and that led me to remember this uh, tweet that you probably got, you guys probably saw it was making the rounds. This person, Teddy Roosevelt, on, on Twitter, claiming Texas Bitcoin miners pushed Texas power grid to the brink of collapse on Tuesday. Oh, God. <laughs> claiming it's in the best interest of Bitcoin miners to push the Texas power grid to the brink of collapse because they make more money shutting down and not working. Uh, as you can imagine, there were lots of people who responded to this, quote, tweeted it, etc., pointing out um, that Bitcoin miners actually consume energy that would not get consumed due to how grids work. Um, and there were a bunch of people who commented on it. The guy actually, someone said, uh, hey, you should debate like a bunch of people. And he named like Pierre Rochard and, and things like that. And the guy said, sure, I'll debate all of them. Uh, I don't know if it actually took <laughs> on, but uh, okay. I, I would love to see that. Well, the, the, the funny thing, too, is that, uh, John, like the people that like this, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, bring up this point of contention suggesting that the reason that the grid was fragile was because of Bitcoin miners. It's like, um, I don't know where that logic is coming from. So like I, when, when, when these heat waves, I, cause like I may have just recently moved to Texas, but I've been watching closely for the last couple of years in particular, like really since, because I got interested and involved in Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Um, but these people always point the finger to, Bitcoin. But when these energy demand moments come up, nobody is pointing the finger at the Xbox players or the Netflix viewers. It's like you guys are consuming energy. You're you're pushing the grid to to the like the breaking point. Like you need to stop watching Netflix and playing your video games in order to protect the grid so we can have our air conditioning. It's always the Bitcoin miners. And it's never the discussion around how the Bitcoin miners <laughs> the fact that they're making more energy shutting down than they are operating is um, I think more of a myth than anything. Like at the Houston meetup last night, um, Parker Lewis brought up a individual that was, I believe he was an energy trader. I might be wrong. Um, but in the discussion over this exact topic, he was discussing how using these hedging solutions, the, these miners using these hedging solutions isn't necessarily to, with the goal of making more money than they would being offline, it's in their interest to try and at least just keep a consistent cash flow going is to avoid having catastrophic losses by not running at all. And these people think that they're like the Bitcoin miners are just making absolute bank 
by shutting down for the grid in order to protect everybody's capability of like maintaining air conditioning to suggest that that is like inviting fragility to the grid just just doesn't make logical sense to me not to mention that money that they're going to be like the miners like the 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 profits that they are going to be making they're still paying for that energy and paying for that energy provides an income stream to justify improving infrastructure for the grid itself so like what are like what are we actually talking about here i don't think i don't think this this teddy bros this, he sounds very arrogant in his um, positioning to be willing to debate individuals like Pierre Rochard or whoever like wants to like take up the mantle. Um, I don't think he really understands what's going on here. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny looking through this thread. And, uh, you know, I will say I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on energy grids or, you know, Bitcoin mining. I do like what Swans, Brandon Quidham has said about this, which I believe is something like Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about Bitcoin combined with everything you don't understand about energy. So there's you know multiple layers to this and it does get pretty tricky. But one thing that seems clear to me is that Bitcoin miners can be a source of energy demand that is uh, time independent, I'll call it, meaning they can just consume the energy when it's there. The grid produces excess energy that, uh, quote unquote, normal consumers of energy would not want to use because people just have already heated their homes or cooled their homes and they don't need more energy. Well, the Bitcoin miners can consume that excess energy. Um, and then when the, uh, the situation flips and the, the normal, quote unquote, consumers of energy uh, need more energy, the Bitcoin miners can turn off. And that, that to me seems like a pretty obvious way that Bitcoin miners can actually help balance uh, electric grids. This guy, Teddy Roosevelt, was just posting like screenshots of articles that said like, look, they got paid to turn off, like, therefore it's bad. And claiming he's done a ton of research on this topic. It was pretty hilarious. Yeah, control of energy and control of the energy narrative is a long-abused and well-wielded control lever. And, you know, they, it seeps down into the people's mentalities. And they start thinking crazy about electricity and about energy and about how, like, what is the acceptable use. But that comes from the top down. They're trying to control the way that, like, that you use your energy because they know that energy brings prosperity. And it's like, it's hand in hand. And I saw a really great tweet today by Steve Barber, where it was, you know, he's got a, a barrel of oil broken down into like, you know, all these pieces. What can one barrel of oil provide? It goes back to the energy density thing that we've talked about before. But just when I see stuff like that, and I see stuff like this Roosevelt tweet, it's, you know, people's entire thinking on this is, it's, it's not that it's backwards, it's that it's poisoned and controlled i put that tweet up in the nest i just wanted to add something there like as far as like uh these bitcoin miners we're talking about that could actually make a difference in the power grid is very few and they have to be you know hooked into that area of the power grid for it to actually be you know a usable you know efficient you know, argue or I don't say argument, but like uh, it's it 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 does work, but 
you gotta you gotta set things up for it to work like that you know what i mean it's all all everybody's house is just out of the question here as far as like the miners that do it at home that that makes it's gonna make no difference whether you know if this huge mining company has to unplug or plug in because of air conditioning demands you know i mean that is a we're not even close to being set up to where that is what i mean they I'm sure we there. It's happening, and some are set up like that. But as far as mainstream, that's I don't think we should be arguing it because I don't think it's ever really gonna happen like that, man. To be honest, um, that's just my two cents. I, I just had to chime in with that. I think it's talked about a lot that and 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 mis misinformation. I think. Well, it comes down to what is decided to be the appropriate uses of energy. I saw that other video where it was like, you know, how is imitation crab made? I don't know if y'all saw it on Twitter, but it was this huge manufacturing yeah. facility yeah. and it was disgusting. And, you know, I mean, just that whole fiatification of that one food source, you know, and just the machine process. Hey, I don't care. Build your fucking factory and like make your imitation crab, whatever. But like... I mean, who's to say that that one usage of energy is better than another? That's what we keep talking about here. But they're going to keep pushing this narrative because this is one of the levers that they have. And this is the one that these sheep, are out, out, you know, they don't understand. They don't understand about energy and the things that Mike is talking about. I, I've been yeah. to Surimi plants on Akitan, and they are horrible places. Hey, and but even after seeing that video... Dude, I can smoke a whole pack of imitation crab. This stuff is so good, man. Like, we got to admit. Hey, on energy situations. Dom, you know, Dom, don't yeah. ever say that again. <laughs> when you visit a, a, a Surimi plant, you will never say that again. Trust me. Did, did they even yeah. use fish? Tell, tell me at least some sort you know of Yeah, they, well. use, they use Pollock. Spam they is use really fish like, I fucking love Spam. Yeah, they fish use light. crap. They use crap fish. They use the, the 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 fish that they can't use for anything else. It's basically pollock. And then what they do is they take the brine from the crab that they have also processed and they mix it in. So it's basically it's basically a crab flavored popcorn is what you're getting. That that yeah. would be mm. the that would be the Anthony Bourdain scene from The Big Short. I mean, but that's not even the point. I mean, it is disgusting. But my point is just you know, and I hope it came. Cross. It's the energy, that huge factory, all those parts moving around, and the sound sounded like a bunch of ASICs running in there, you know. But and and ant, you'll never well, guess what these plants use to provide energy: diesel generators. Yep. The, uh, you know, from from obviously where I'm at in my state of California, um, you know, it's very clear that the preference on renewable energies will bear a cost burden on the taxpayer that is tremendous. I read an interesting article the other day that to achieve this is going to be massive. I mean, Bitcoin offers so many opportunities for California, which, you know, the energy grid here is, is a disaster. It's outdated. Um, there's, there's all kinds of issues and challenges. Um, but again, just in the sense of uh, a, a, an energy partner to help, ease that burden uh there's a lot of opportunity there not not to mention the fact that you know i'm sure you guys see in the news uh the pressure to divest california pension is one of the biggest funders of fossil fuels and big oil so when you watch the folks kind of talking about how we don't support big oil just remember 
that the California pension is the number one public pension funder of, of big oil and fossil fuel in the country. Um, but they have this dilemma where the values don't match the, the pocketbook. And again, Bitcoin offers this perfect opportunity to pivot responsibly away from fossil fuels if they want to uh, in a way and, and not put the burden on the taxpayer. Like going even beyond that, Dom, it's just like ultimately the the best pairing in in hum, the human species for ener energy generation and utilizing Bitcoin mining as the incentive. Like the real pairing that we're all kind of like alluding to is going to be nuclear. Like the 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 having to rely on hydrocarbons for energy production, particularly natural gas, because like you don't want to use oil for for energy production. Um, the reliance on natural gas is just because it's so like you can make it so reliable. You can store it and then use it whenever you want. And these peaker plants can just sit and wait until they're needed. And nobody's talking about the peaker plants as far as like the, what happened with like the, this <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt individual, nobody's talking about how like, Oh, well they're, they're making so much money because they're only turning on when they're needed. It's like, okay, like how is that a social negative? Like, <laughs> Like it's just there, there's a lot of aspects of this that people aren't talking about or even aware of, let alone the fact that I think a lot of um, normies or laymen think that energy grids are operating as far as like the the demand is consistent throughout every day and night. And that's just not true. And just people just don't have the that kind of awareness or understanding. Guys, I'd love to jump in for a second. Thanks, everybody. Um, I'm not an energy expert. I'm actually um, a plastic pollution researcher, and I'd love to give you a, a, just a different take from my opinion. Been in Bitcoin for a long time and inspired by everything that's going on. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a plastic pollution researcher. There's about 150 million tons of plastic currently in the oceans um, that is only beginning to fragment exponentially. Um, and the current fiat system has not only enabled but accelerated this global production of, of plastic that's uh, being transported into the oceans. Um, and as uh, disruptors of the systems, I think one thing we need to do is to take uh, the, the development of open source technological sustainability uh, more seriously. So I'm um, a developer, a software developer. I'm a, uh, I have a digital public good for collecting data on plastic pollution. One thing that I found dealing with the current systems is that they really discriminate against open source technological sustainability and they have a really firm grip on IP transfer from if you're a researcher trying to get funding. And part of the reason they do this is because open source literacy makes their systems and their monetary paradigm redundant. Um, so I think one thing that we have a responsibility for as custodians of open source money, uh, we have a responsibility to finance the development of intergenerational open source solutions that can transform public participation in science. So there's currently about 3 billion people out there who've got powerful devices that can collect data. We call these phones, but the phone is now a secondary feature of your machine. The, the, fundamentally, your device is a data collection instrument. And if you don't know how it's collecting data, well, it's collecting data about you. So all of these people get this access to this always online by default Orwellian technology with cameras and microphones that are always connected to the internet by, by default with no training about what it is and how to use it responsibly. So there's an opportunity now to intervene and to actually create systems that teach people before you get access to technology, 
this is the facts and this is how you can approach the world through a non-human data collection lens. And instead of pointing our device at ourselves, which immediately destroys our privacy and biometric security, what we need to do is intervene and teach people how to point the device away from them to collect real world factual data so they can grow their scientific literacy and open source literacy. But the current systems discriminate against this type of education because open source literacy makes their monetary paradigm redundant. Thanks, Irish. That's that's interesting. Could could you give an example of something that someone with a phone, like what type of data could they collect and how would it help scientific research or uh, like pollution uh, oriented stuff that you were talking about? Sure, man. Um, I've got a website that I've developed. Um, I'm not here to show, but I'd love if you could guys check it out. It's called OpenLitterMap.com. It's open source. All the data is open. It's inspired by OpenStreetMap, which is the world's most comprehensive map of the world and um, crowdsourced by 10 million volunteers. And what we're doing is we're creating a real-time um, data collection interface. So it's really easy to just take a photo and add a tag. And you can add a tag about anything. The first application is litter. So you can, I find some Coca-Cola or Red Bull litter. Well, we're collecting data on all those global corporations. Um, but you can add a tag for anything. We've got people getting crypto donations who are tagging how they're spending their impact. And um, some other applications as well. It's been forked to help map landmines in Ukraine and uh, some other purposes as well. So we're trying to develop just an easy to use um, open source data collection layer for the internet. Um, and I, the only chance that I've ever had for funding was with the Pineapple Fund in 2017. And if you remember that, there was like a $64 million giveaway. I think that was one of the best use cases for Bitcoin, and we need more of that. So for Bitcoin to be taken seriously and for us to accelerate adoption, what we need to do is do things like Pineapple Fund, where we just support the open source development of digital public goods. Um, and I, that's going to just transform our narrative because we're fixing the problems that we're inheriting from the fiat generation. Um, and we have a responsibility to do that faster and better. And I think that's how we win and that's how we speed up acceleration and get over this environmental energy narrative, which I think will just become irrelevant over time. Um, but the sooner we do that, I think we're going to live in a much more prosperous, abundant world. Right on. Thanks for sharing that, man. So I think we'll talk about, you know, these institutional uh, adoption and influence of Bitcoin narratives throughout the rest of the show. You know, feel free to bring that up, anyone, if you want to. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. There's one other thing that I wanted to raise here. One, because I find it a little bit funny. Uh, two, it, it touches on this idea of, you know, you have conversations with people who think they're coming up with something negative about Bitcoin, but then, you know, pe most people in this room probably have a response for it, but then you're just kind of wondering, like, where's the disconnect here? Why does this person think that way? Uh, I, I do want to share a tweet from, from George Gammon, and uh, this is not meant to rip on George Gammon. I am honestly a fan of his, uh, fan of his content for a while. I probably see the world like, you know, 98% similar to him, so... Not trying to rip on George Gammon, but he put together a tweet where he said, I've been studying their plan there, the, the BIS, for a global CBDC for the last couple of days. One horrifying realization I've had is all property that has legal ownership, think house, car, stocks, will be recorded via tokenization on their unified ledger based on their rules. Then uh, Luke uh, Michik, if I'm saying that correctly, um, 
basically said something about this is why you should go to Bitcoin. It's a logical decision, et cetera, et cetera. George responded with, Luke, you need to read and fully understand every word of that report. There's no scenario where it's bullish for Bitcoin if they implement a global unified ledger. Every advantage of Bitcoin slash Lightning Network outside of 21 million and some form of privacy is gone. So that, that last thing was George Gammon's tweet. And uh, I mean, some of you probably caught it, but it, it just seems amazing to me that someone like George Gammon is putting aside the 21 million cap of Bitcoin, the scarcity of Bitcoin, the fixed supply of Bitcoin, the fact that Bitcoin cannot be debased. And he's also adding in, yeah, there's some form of privacy, which kind of gets into the benefit of censorship. And once you're talking about scarcity, privacy, and censorship resistance, I mean, you're hitting on the core attributes of why we're all into Bitcoin and sound money. Yet someone like George Gammon said, oh, well, you know, all the advantages of Bitcoin, except for that stuff, it's gone. So again, one, I kind of find it funny. But two, I kind of find it amazing. Like, wh what is it that we think is not getting through to someone like George, where he, he truly thinks a BIS unified ledger means that Bitcoin's advantages are gone? I think that they're just distracted by price. I mean, I think that that's like the only thing that they really look at. Right? You know, so they're not I, uh, looking at I any of the other to, things. To hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. I think, I think you might have to... Uh, sign out and sign back in. Wicked was speaking, oh, okay, but I think okay. the Twitter, it's the Twitter thing where you couldn't hear him. Yeah, I was having problems earlier. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much, I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of what I was going to say there. Is there's focus on price. So like, you know, I mean, price goes up, price goes down, it's volatile. And they think, oh, this thing could never be money. doesn't matter how secure it is. doesn't matter if it's truly fixed in supply. doesn't matter if, you know, it's got a growing network, an exponentially growing network. They just don't care. They see the price and they get scared. And that's really it. Yeah, I think I think they they discount statements like that discount the the they dismiss actually the most powerful thing about Bitcoin, and that's people's willingness to sacrifice time, resources, and energy. Uh, for something that's not just long term, but for values that, that represent something that's kind of greater uh, than themselves or for the greater good. They, they attribute no value to that. And uh, a centralized CBDC also attributes no value to that. So they miss that all the time. I wanted to um, to add to this too. Uh, sorry, Wicked, I, I could not hear you. And I honestly, like with how busted twitter is i don't even know if i can hear you now um but you're you're good no one else is going go ahead mike okay okay um because like i i responded to george's um tweet as well this morning with what i might have misinterpreted it but it seemed like he was claiming that because of a quote-unquote unified global ledger making it um more useful or just as useful as Bitcoin and seemed like he was suggesting that it like, therefore Bitcoin's value prop goes away. I was just like, uh, George, do you like actually trust the data that is being put out by a lot of the governments today? Like, do we trust the data that's being put out by China? No. Like if you trust the data that's being put out by China, you're a bit of an idiot. And like, look at how like the economics are being, um, 
quote unquote measured and pushed to the populace. Like we know CPI is manipulated in order to project a certain viewpoint of the world. We know um, unemployment is manipulated to project a certain viewpoint of the world. And then you also have to consider the, these globalist um, darling project, which we know is Ethereum. They even don't understand that Ethereum like is being used in a way that is not decentralized. It can be rolled back hashtag, uh, you know, Ethereum classic. And this just this position that a unified global ledger would just supersede the value of Bitcoin. It's just like, it's just nonsense because to, to think that they wouldn't like start changing things on that ledger in order to like support their view of the world or their view of reality and what they want people to believe to think that like we could trust them not to do that is just a bunch of nonsense. To me, it's, it's kind of like saying, Hey, we don't need West Berlin. We don't, West Berlin doesn't provide any value. We have East Berlin. Like that, that's what I hear when I, when I hear that kind of comparison. Lots of hands up here. Uh, our Ben, I think you had your hand up first. What, what is on your mind, man? Hey, John, good morning. Um, I know you were mentioning kind of talking around uh, institutional money going to Bitcoin. And I was just curious, uh, there's a lot of muscle here with people who've interacted with high-level execs and corporations. And I was just wondering, um, when you're speaking to an executive, let's say at like a small cap public corp or whatever, really, like some CEO or some executive that's busy running their business, um, you know, I've watched Sailor kind of give a breakdown on corporate's incentives to, uh, you know, stack Bitcoin and get involved. And I think, at least in my eyes, the two tiers are one, to have a harder capital asset, and then two, um, also sometimes, I mean, I don't think Sailor necessarily mentioned this, but I just see it as an advantage is sometimes the press that's involved uh, with one of these companies gaining Bitcoin exposure. I'm just curious when you've got a limited time frame, say 15, 30 minutes, and you don't necessarily have a pulse on their personal uh, viewpoint on that, what other incentives and um, points you try to make to get them to make that jump or at least be interested in further discussion about it? Yeah, that that's a great one. Um, if you yeah, if you can't get them to listen to six hours of Mike, Michael Saylor explaining why he has adopted Bitcoin for his company. And if you have more limited time than that, uh, I would still try to hit on some of the themes that that Saylor always talks about. You know, you are producing value as as your company doing whatever it does. And you want to store that value somewhere. Historically, people were able to store value in the form of money without taking the unnecessary and additional risks of in, in what I would call true investing meaning parking your money into something that comes with all different types of risks, including the possibility of complete loss. You don't want to have to run your company and then also become a part-time investment manager. You want to have something where you can store that value well into the future and just focus on what you actually do as a company and storing that value in something that is uh, scarce, fixed supply, digital, peer-to-peer, censorship-resistant, non-state monetary asset uh, ends up being quite attractive. 
And if you do that, you probably will spend the most amount of time focusing on your business, serving your clients and actually becoming a better business. Uh, I think there's probably something that needs to be said about the volatility because if someone parks some of their you know, value that they've created by their company and then Bitcoin drops by even 5 or 10%, they're going to be like, oh man, did I make the right decision? Uh, so there needs to be some discussion about allocation and risk and volatility and uh, time horizon. But um, those are the types of things that come to mind in terms of if I was just talking to, like you said, uh, you know, head of a corporation, they're not really an investor, but it's just like, hey, why should Bitcoin be on your radar at all? Uh, those are the things that come to mind for me. So, I mean, um, I don't know, like for, if you're scared of the volatility, then just make recurring purchases or dollar cost average. And, you know, you'll pretty much even out that volatility, you know, over like a period of a year or two, and you'll be fine. You'll be golden. Um, and the, the last thing I wanted to say regarding this whole, like, you know, distributed global ledger idea, there's no such thing as an immutable permissioned ledger that just does not exist. It doesn't make any sense. If your ledger is permissioned, it means there's people in charge of it, which means they can change it if they fucking want. What makes Bitcoin special is that no one's in charge of it. No one decides, you know, like what the state of the ledger currently is other than everyone's nodes who all follow the same rules. It's whatever chain has the most energy. So the universe decides, you understand? There's not a person or a group of people saying, yeah, this is the right chain of transactions or this is the right ledger. They just don't get it. They don't understand that it's like, well, you know, if, if I was in charge, then you could trust me because I would always tell you the truth. Or if it was like me and my buddies over there in China and my buddies over there in Europe, you know, we're all trustworthy. If it's a globally distributed ledger <laughs> gated by us, you know, like, uh, you know, they just don't get it. They don't understand that we don't fucking trust them. I don't know, Wicked. People have promised me there's some big opportunities in private blockchains. I've I've gotten those emails about how blockchain is going to revolutionize. What are we? Did we business. just take Did we just take a fucking time machine back to 2017? <laughs> These people need to fucking wake up out of their comas. So, so that I was going to say something about that too. This this whole uh, on this George Gammon tweet, I saw tons of people at Goldman have a take like this. Uh, probably 2019, maybe even early 2020, and they had this view that was like. Oh, if it's a race between central banks slash governments, because it's basically the same thing, uh, to issue some sort of digital currency. And if they can issue it fast enough, then we don't need Bitcoin. Like that, that actually is what very smart, experienced people on Wall Street said, like just a few years ago. And I bet some of them believe that. And I don't know where it comes from other than that they just think, oh, Bitcoin is a digital currency. And uh, you know, a digital euro is also a digital currency and whichever one makes it first, then like we don't need the other. And that's, that's why I was coming up with the East West Berlin scenario, because to me, it, it's just like saying, yeah, you know, there's no difference between East and West Berlin. If, as long as we have East Berlin, we don't need West Berlin. Like, it's just, it's just crazy to me, but I don't know how to get through to these people if 
they still have these takes years and years and years later. Well, John, they, they also they they also discount the journey tremendously, right? And for everyone that's in this space, they don't know about the block size wars. They don't know about the Silk Road or maybe at a surface level. They don't know about, you know, Mount Gox, like all the challenges and incredible obstacles and how you know, the core Bitcoin community has kind of navigated those and kept it strong. They discount that. And it's that's the most surprising part, because these are business folks that know how hard it is to build a brand and how hard it is to navigate obstacles over a time period. And the thought that just introducing something because they they have a lead advantage and are institutionally, you know, rooted in finance um, that they can just enter this space and, and create something that is the dominant thing is is very laughable. For sure, for sure. I, yeah, I think it comes from lack of understanding, but also from their ability to want to create a permission system and convince everyone that this is just as good as that other you know, well, I'll, I'll use the term public, uh, n- uh, non-permissionless uh, system. And they just like, ah, you don't need that. Like, just use our thing. Wicked, you still have a hand up? Yeah, they, um, they, again, they just don't get it. Like, they don't understand why you would ever want money that doesn't have counterparty risk and can't be controlled or manipulated because, they're benefiting from their, you know, the money they have now, right? So they're in positions where they're able to use, you know, their cantillionaire status, uh, whether it's a direct line of, <laughs> of uh, uh, you know, benefiting from the money printing or even indirect, right? I mean, even us up on stage probably benefit to an extent to fiat because we're, you know, like we're probably you know fairly well off relative to the rest of the world and you know we're productive people so we have high credit scores we can get lines of credit we can like do all these things that are totally fiat and give us an advantage in life right um and then that gets you know worse and worse and worse kind of the higher up the totem pole you are so people at the very top are just like fleecing us you know what i'm saying so they don't see it. They don't see like why would you, why would you want a different system? The system's fucking awesome, dude. I get to fleece all you bitches. <laughs> I just yeah. invest my money and it goes up nine to ten percent in these passive investment vehicles every year. And if I can get into some fancy private equity fund, it goes up like twenty <clears> percent <throat> a year. What's the problem? Uh, well, like, Gort. go ahead, Sam. Well, I think George Gammon said something like when he's looking at that global ledger CBDC uh, that the Bank of International Settlements is designing right now, you know, he said something like, the only thing it doesn't have is 21 million. But I'm like, that's the only thing that actually matters in Bitcoin. <laughs> like, if we lost 21 million, this whole thing would, it would be done, like completely done. Like, that is the entire, the most important part of Bitcoin is that there's only 21 million and everything revolves around 21 million um it's the scarcity it's the fact you can't print any more of it and then i think it's it's kind of like uh high time preference thinking it's because it, it's going to have the same monetary policies built into these shiny new cbdc wrappers that have increased surveillance um and you could try to entice people with the convenience and ubi and all these things but over long periods of time uh 
their purchasing power is going to continue to get eroded from these monetary policies. And anybody who holds Bitcoin, uh, they're going to have their purchasing power increase. And that's going to allow them to, you know, have a better quality of life, to afford essentials better, and to basically acquire, you know, scarce assets and resources, you know, in the real world. And these people who are holding CBDCs are going to be looking at their Bitcoin counterparts and be like, oh, shit, we're actually falling behind because we hold worse money um, and they keep debasing our money. And on top of that, they're surveilling the shit out of us. And so, you know, over long periods of time, I think more and more people are going to recognize this. There might be these two parallel there probably will be these two parallel monetary systems and perhaps it'll like push Bitcoin a little bit adoption, maybe delay it a little bit as people don't understand this difference. But over long periods of time, the monetary policy matters. And the fact that there's only 21 million Bitcoin is all that matters. And so I think like George, I don't know. I don't know why it's hard for him to wrap his head around that. Um, but that's kind of my takeaways from that whole conversation. I was kind of flabbergasted by it. I wonder if it's because he doesn't actually believe that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Because I think that's another thing that people struggle with is they hear it, right? They hear there will only ever be 21 million, but maybe they don't actually believe it for whatever reason. Or they consider like all these, you know, shit coins to be diluted supply where it's kind of, you know, it's like, okay, sure. It's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, but now there's like 20,000 other cryptos. And uh, therefore, it's not actually fixed because people just keep on spinning off other shit coins, right? So they don't they don't believe it, and or they just don't distinguish it from other shit coins. Yeah, and this this reminds me of Jamie Dimon, who was on. I want to say this was only like within the last six months when he was like, "How do you know there's 21 million?" What, Remember, you guys remember this clip? He's like, what if Satoshi's face comes up? Oh, yeah. Is that Davos? Is that Davos, right? Yeah, I was remembering (laughs) some snowy background. Yeah, yeah. It happens in 2140. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, Satoshi's face comes up and just says, ha ha. And like, yeah, that's funny. That was a funny clip. But the implication of that, to me, is kind of amazing because he's admitting that 21 million fixed supply is a good thing because he he is saying he's like what if it's not it's a risk that it's not 21 million it's like okay Jamie Diamond are you actually agreeing that a monetary asset that is scarce or at, at least scarce but is fixed supply actually has value and if Satoshi comes out and says oh it's not 21 million anymore that that means value would be taken from people like you're just admitting that creating more money out of thin air takes value from people uh, no one called him out on that, though. I was I was amazed at that. He's also admitting that he hasn't done the work, doesn't know anything about Bitcoin really beyond the superficial. Yeah, and he also doesn't run a node, apparently. <laughs> that that is that's a hot take right there. Jamie Diamond does not run a node. <laughs> you just check the supply right there, buddy. <laughs> run, a, run your own note. Um, but yeah, Sam, to- totally agree with your takes on on George Gavin, and and the reason why I bring him up again, I like I said this might have been before you joined Sam, but I'm a fan of his. Uh, I probably see the world 98 percent similar similarly to him, so that's why I actually like to bring up comments from him because to me it just seems like we should be getting through better to him. 
but for some reason we're not, and I'm not sure where the gap is, but you know, to Sam's points for him to say, Oh, well, except for 21 million and privacy, like there's no big advantages. It's like, okay, do you got to think about how big those advantages are? And just elaborating on that a little bit more, I, I would say the advantages of, let's just call it sound money in general. Obviously, I think Bitcoin is the best and the only chance at humanity getting sound money. Uh, the, the advantages, in my opinion, are protection from debasement. That's just another way of saying scarcity and fixed supply. It is censorship resistance. So permissionless, no one can tell you that you can or can't use it. Uh, privacy, which is kind of part of censorship resistance, but a little bit different. Uh, people just can't see what uh, you are spending your money on. But the reason why I say it's part of censorship resistance is that if no one can see what you're spending your money on, you likely have some sort of censorship resistance. But I understand they're not exactly the same thing. Um, and then just like ease of use. You know, The reason why gold failed beca is because it was not that easy to use and you couldn't transport it across the world across the country to pay for something instantaneously. So if you check all those boxes, that is a form of money that people are going to want to use. So again, for someone to just be like, oh yeah, the whole scarcity and privacy thing, like not a big deal. Uh, I just, I don't get how they can't see that it is a very big deal. I think, because uh, <clears throat> I agree with you, John, I, I'm actually, I've been a, a fan of George's for a while. Um, I think that George's problem, and this isn't me necessarily being conceding, I do think it is a, being conceded, I do think it is a problem, is that I think George is a relatively good problem identifier. I don't think he is a problem solver. And those take very different trains of thought. Because like, like um, I don't know how much of the Bitcoin community has seen his videos where he broke down the very convoluted and complex operations of the Federal Reserve and how it like actually plays out to money printing. That's those are very long videos, and his his uh, his dry erase board that he has become that he's established his brand on using was very very full in those in those discussions, and I think that. George is in a position that much of the fiat world is in, um, similarly to the the um, countries of Africa that just agreed that they're going to fight the fiat dollar, the U.S. dollar system by making their own new fiat dollar system. The, these individuals don't understand that you like, like one of the biggest talking points that we've all talked like we've all pressed is that you can't change a broken system from within the system. Like it just doesn't make sense. I think that's probably George's biggest weakness right now. Yeah, I don't like to, like, I think George is just on his own learning journey uh, when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, I don't like to, like, call out individuals. You know, I think he's a smart guy, and I, I think he will get around to it um, eventually. But I think you're so right, Mike, in terms of identifying problems um, and not working towards solutions, because that's when I get frustrated, because it brings up the CBDC. He he did the work there, he read the research papers, understands the problem that's coming down the pipeline. Um, and then he attacks the only solution that's out there right now. Like there is no other alternative to a central bank digital currency than Bitcoin. Like point me towards it if you think there is, because you're attacking the one solution, you're poking holes in things, you're saying, oh, this isn't gonna work for X, Y, and Z. Well, show me a, a different solution or, or shut the fuck up. <laughs> Yes. 
Let's go, Sam. <laughs> I'm liking this energy this morning. Yeah, man. Bring bring it, Sam. Yeah, this, the solution to East Berlin is West Berlin. It, I, I will keep on bringing up that East and West Berlin <laughs> scenario. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep kicking that, that dead horse. Are you suggesting we need to build a wall? Is that what you're saying, John? <laughs> Some sort of digital wall between the CBDC and, and Bitcoin. Suppose, I suppose you could argue that that exists, and that's the whole point. I, I'd like to give you another take, if I can. Um, so this is what it feels like. Right for normal people who are in their fiat bubble, when we approach them with litter, with, with uh, Bitcoin, they they get this. So I'm about to say that as as well as Bitcoin, I believe there will be other currencies, um, and Bitcoin will not exist in isolation. Um, one such currency, I believe, uh, what's out there, which I think is going to be really good for Bitcoin, it's called Littercoin. And as Bitcoin is produced right through uh, the, the the hashing of transactions. Littercoin, these UTXOs are produced geospatially by people making real-world observations about the planet. And what we can do is we can embed our open source values, um, our ocean values into these currencies and create better systems than fiat. This is not supposed to rival Bitcoin. This is supposed to complement Bitcoin. So I just want to put that out there um, and say that there are options and uh, a lot of people are going to actually earn their first currencies and not have to part money for them. Um, yeah, I just want to put that out there. Yeah, but we're probably not going to spend a ton of time on that one. Where most, I think most people <laughs> here are not uh, generally supportive of their. Be I would put well, that in the category of why do we need a token for that? And that's cool. Uh, no, I, I, it I appreciate really work. that, but but you guys got to understand that this is what it feels like when you're in the fiat bubble when someone approaches you about Bitcoin. Oh, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, th I think I follow what you're saying. But yeah, in general, I I also think the way that we're talking to each other on this in this particular space uh, is not exactly the same way we would talk to someone who is fully in the fiat bubble. Um, we might if we get frustrated, but uh, we definitely should have some you know humility and just understanding about, as they say, meeting the person where they are. So I definitely think that that is important for any okay. Bitcoiner to do. John, can I just say that I would love to get a clip of Sam talking to Jamie Dimon and asking him, it's like, do you run a node, dude? Like, you, you, can, you can confirm, like, the amount of Bitcoin that's out there on, the, on that fucking node, bro. Like, <laughs> get a node. I, uh, that clip was cool, though, because I think it was Joe Kernan from CNBC. Um, you know, I don't know, like, five years ago, a CNBC, like, a you know, host of the show, understanding like hey there's only 21 million though jamie and like joe really has shown over the years that he kind of grasped the bitcoin and he's done the work a little bit um and so it's cool to see him like challenge jamie in that video when, when jamie was saying that stuff um i just remember it it was pretty cool yeah that that's a fair point like if, if you zoom out and think about what the conversation was like in 2017 uh, it has made a lot of progress for sure. Just, just like you said, Sam, the fact that a CNBC anchor on a major financial media outlet is saying, well, but there's only 21 million and there's some value there. Uh, that's a huge step forward compared to where we were years ago. Uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I would have liked to see someone press Jamie Dimon a little bit more about, hey, wait, Jamie, you're telling us that 21 million, you're admitting it has value because you're worried that there's a risk that it might not be the case in the future. 
it would have been nice to see Jamie kind of, you know, do mental gymnastics around that one. But maybe a few more years we'll get people pressing bank CEOs a little bit harder. I mean, John, shouldn't they see that because money has technically old, like unlimited demand and the supply side is the only really exact counter, you know, like reaction to that? Like money has ultimate, like ultimately infinite demand. And I'm sure he's, he can't be that, you know what I mean? Like he can't be that dumb. Like he's got to know that if the supply is actually counting. <laughs> You know, like, come on. Like, it's like... <laughs> I, you know, I, it's a good point, and I think they understand it to a certain extent, but this is where you get into more arguments that uh, – you get into the arguments about the elasticity of money, and this uh, is where people like George Gammon or Jeff Snyder or others have this view that uh, we actually do need the money supply to be elastic with whatever, things like population growth or economic activity, or it needs to be elastic at quote unquote, the right times and inelastic at other times. And they never really describe a good way that that works. Um, typically the way that if you allow money supply to be elastic, it, in my opinion, in the opinion of Austrian economics, it ends up causing boom and bust cycles. So the complete opposite of what the elastic money proponents claim, they claim that it helps smooth out economic activity. It, I think in reality, it, it literally causes economic booms and busts when the money supply expands via credit expansion, and then it ends up contracting. Uh, it, it literally makes everything worse. Um, so yeah, you get into these arguments about, do we need more money to, uh, allow to, to satisfy more population or more economic growth? I think the answer is no, no, no. But, uh, there's, there's lots of schools, economic thought who, who think differently. And of course, if you're a bank CEO, I mean, you're not, you're very unlikely to be in the camp of, oh, we need, uh, perfectly inelastic money. For, for a couple of reasons. One, on the true you know, commercial retail banking side, they're the people who take in bank deposits and then make loans. That's, a, that's directly a part of their business that, that they benefit from. If, if you take that away, uh, you're taking away a part of their business. But it's not just that part of the business that JP Morgan benefits from. Uh, let you know. Talk about two other huge parts of any large bank. They have an asset manager that manages probably well over a trillion dollars, and they have uh, a broker dealer. So think like investment banking. Think uh, counterparty for what would would also uh, often be called the securities division. If you have sound money, there's going to be there's still a need for securities trading counterparty type stuff. There's still a need for investment banking. But it's going to be way, way, way smaller. Uh, and, and same thing with asset management. There's still a need for asset management. But if people aren't forced to invest their money, it's going to be way, way, way smaller. So uh, anyway, long-winded long way of saying the bank CEO is very, very unlikely to tell the truth about the benefits and the, the real-world effects of an inelastic money. Can I just, can I just I want to add on to that because Jamie Dimon specifically and J.P. Morgan Chase, um, it's everything you said, John. They're incentivized to slander Bitcoin, essentially. But they're also supporting central bank digital currency efforts. Um, and they own about 25% of consensus. And if you know the central bank digital currency research, um, a lot of the back-end infrastructure for these pilot programs, there's basically two companies that are experimenting on it. There's R3 Corda and there's consensus. And enterprise Ethereum. 
and JP Morgan Chase owns 25% of that, all right? And so when you look at the design of a CBDC system as well, there's not gonna be a direct account at the Federal Reserve. They wanna keep the commercial banks doing all the front end stuff, all the client facing activities, all the operations, all the securities, all the data collection. And guess what the banks have wanted for so long? They want all the data that the FinTech companies have. And they want all that data siloed into them because data is power, data is money. And that's what the central bank digital system would be, would be the commercial banks like JP Morgan Chase and these five other mega banks that only, it only becomes more concentrated over time. So there's only gonna be like a JP Morgan Chase who has all the data of all the financial transactions going through the CBDC system. And that's what they're really after. And so Bitcoin is obviously the other system that's competing. And so he's going to always slander that because they are in the background gearing up to have themselves be at the forefront of this CBDC system that George Gammon is talking about. Right on, right on. That's another great point about what a bank CEO would be concerned with is not just having profitability for his or her business, but about visibility into what people are spending on. That's a great point, Sam. Well, that is profitability. It, yeah, it, it leads into data. profitability for sure, oh, yeah. for sure. I mean, come on. It's quite insane that it's fraud if you mislabel a transaction reported to a bank. If, uh, sorry, say that again, Arben? Here, let me, let me just give a concrete example. Um, if you're trying to spend money and you don't want someone to know where you spent that money, uh, if you wanted to create a company that took that transaction and relabeled it and basically on your bank statement and report to the banks, uh, put whatever you wanted personally, individually, after spending your money, say you wanted to market as 7-Eleven instead of a smoke shop or whatever, that's like a high level of fraud committed in the bank's eyes, which is insane considering it's quote unquote your money. Right. Yeah. And this gets into the philosophical views about, you know, what a bank or a government should even have visibility into at all. Uh, I'm obviously in the camp that I don't believe they should have visibility into that kind of stuff. It is none of their business. It is your money. Uh, and I would just, you know, people who think that's a radical view, uh, I would just point to the, <laughs> the fact that cash or precious metals being used as money for however long it was. Uh, there was no way to even label a transaction that didn't exist. Uh, and that is a world that I would like to go back to. Obviously not the, the cash and precious metals part, but just the having privacy and what you do with your money. Wicked, I see you got a hand up. Yeah, I just had a, a public service announcement. Um, as of a few minutes ago, every single person who's been daily DCAing ever, no matter when they started, could have been at the all-time high or earlier or later, it doesn't matter when they started. Every single one of them is now in profit. So congratulations, you motherfuckers. <laughs> nice. You heard it from Wicked. That, that is a great announcement. Uh, I love that. Are you tweeting something about it, Wicked? I just, I, I just made an animation for it, put it in the nest. I, uh, can I just harp on this for one more second? Because <laughs> all of this, the CBDCs, um, a lot of the arguments for why they're going about making them is around the data. And it really is around this idea that these fintech companies, these, these private companies have all of this uh, transaction data, all this financial data. And these central banks are saying, hey, 
you know, they're abusing this data and they're turning around and making profits off of it. And so we are central banks. We are public institutions. So we should have this data because we won't abuse it. We won't, you know, turn it, we won't turn around and try to make a profit of it because we don't have incentive to do that. But it's so funny because that's assuming that they disintermediate the commercial banks and, and take all those functions away from them. But they're not planning on doing that. They're planning on giving it to the commercial banks. So this really is an attack on fintech companies um, and basically giving their powers or trying to siphon their powers and their, you know, the data that they have to these large bulge bracket banks, these commercial banks that, of course, these central banks have been, you know, in cahoots with for the last, you know, whatever, decades. So I, I think it's such an important part because it really is at the heart about the data. Um, and that's what you read when you read all these like research papers on CBDCs. Like they're so concerned about this stuff. Yeah, I, man, I just find it. I just truly cannot comprehend how people buy that that argument. It comes down to the benevolent dictator argument. You know, yeah, we're gonna have all the information about what you spend money on, and but we're a public institution, and a public institution would never ever misuse or that that kind of data against you, right? I mean, who actually believes that? I just I, I truly can't comprehend that, that that gets through to people and they say, yeah, that's a good system that I want to be a part of. Nate, what's up, man? Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? Am I clear? Yes. Awesome. Yep. Hallelujah. Um, yesterday, uh, CNBC reported that in 2018, a subsidiary of J.P. Morgan Chase lost 47 million emails. And yesterday, the SEC finally uh, lowered their fine on them of $4 million. Um, and I just, just just Google this for fun. J.P. Morgan Chase Violation Tracker. It's a list of every violation since 2000, I believe. And the total number comes to something like $36 billion in fines and levies. Um, and this is across over 140 some odd violations. So when, when the government literally hands them uh, uh, an entire institution and then you see them on the back end chasing further data, um, I, I believe we can trust Jamie Dimon in the future uh, going forward with this kind of responsibility. And uh, I'm, I'm all for it. Give him the CBDCs. Let, let them decide um, what you can and can't spend your money on. Yeah, and this is the problem with, uh, you know, concentration of the banking system, too. There's no competition. There's moral hazard. And they don't have to worry about, you know, they, they basically budget in these fines every year. And I, I, I did a tweet, like, a couple months ago. It said, over the last eight years, under the leadership of Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase has admitted to five criminal felony counts, a multitude of civil crimes, and has paid billions in fines. Diamond was awarded with a $50 million bonus after the fourth and fifth felony counts. A true banker's hero. And that was, I shared like a during the banking crisis, there was Jamie Diamond, banking crisis action hero. That was the headline. And I was just like, what is going on here? Like this guy, is, during his leadership, his, this bank has committed so many crimes. And he just keeps his job, keeps getting bonuses. And so it's like the epitome of the fiat system, in my opinion. Well, he's doing the job. He's, he's working in a positive manner for J.P. Morgan Chase. 
he's not necessarily like a good guy in the grander sense of things, but he's like, he's benefiting the bank. And so the bank is going to reward him appropriately. One, one thing uh, over the overall arcing kind of conversation is it's not just about the data They're, they they want to become the house. This, they want, they want that rake at the end of every transaction, every service fee, whatever they can throw on top. Like, it's the traditional banking system on top of Bitcoin. However, they can get any number of sats from you. They're going to do it. And if this is in the spread, if this is in any kind of arbitrage between their specified, you know, um, <clears throat> we're going, I think it was like something sometime after four o'clock, which is a reasonable amount of time, they have to declare the price for the day. And then they can make their transactions based off that. We're going to see price action in other subsidiaries based on this behavior. And I think it's going to, they're going to try to affect the market in significant ways, aside from just trying to control all of the money period, as far as stablecoin is concerned. So like <laughs> anybody you talk to that has suddenly heard from their financial advisor that it's suddenly okay, you, you, you have the nod, you have the approval to buy Bitcoin through us, through this other uh, financial vehicle. Tell them the truth. They don't need anybody. So I just want to make one more comment about this before we pivot to more macro topics, because we've got Dr. Jeff here, we've got Stephen Luca here, um, and, and others on stage. So I, I couldn't help but look this up, Nate, after you mentioned this good jobs first violation tracker website. So I looked it up for JP Morgan. Some pretty huge numbers there in terms of uh, fines that they have paid. Uh, in recent years, and I, I couldn't help but look up, okay, the other, this kind of makes everybody think about Pfizer, right? They're always in the news about paying very large fines, uh, often, which are often health and safety related. Not, you know, it's not just like, oh, you didn't do paperwork. It's like true health and safety related concerns. Well, Pfizer is on there for total penalties since the year 2000 is $11 billion. And JP Morgan total penalties since the year 2000 is almost 37 billion. So uh, <laughs> significantly and larger than Pfizer. Pfizer holds the record for the single highest fine in history. They should, they should post those not in like dollar amounts, but as a percentage of their profits. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That would be more meaningful for sure. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Nate. Um, that, that violation tracker is an interesting one to, to keep an eye on. Um, well, before we um, go, go to Dr. Jeff, I, I just want to say, uh, how are you doing today, Jeff? Are, are you doing okay, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right. We're, awesome. We're, no, no everybody asks you for macro crap? first. I'm trying to ask you how you're doing first. Hey, I'm just being well, a human being. Like I'm a real person or something. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, dude. Hey, I, I have a real comment for Dr. Jeff, actually, that is not about macro. This is really going to get at his heart and who he is as a human being. Dr. Jeff, I wanted to ask you, uh, or should I say Dr. Crab, because that's what you've been lately. There has been a video circulating the internet for the last few days about how imitation crab is made. And I wanted to get your reaction to that. And is there an official stance from the crab community on that video? <laughs> Thanks, John. That's a fantastic question because it really, you know, hits home. Uh, I will say to start that even though I am uh, crabby, 
I, uh, as a kid, loved imitation crab meat. Like it was my favorite food, literally oh, in the no. world. I, <laughs> I would go, I would go grocery shopping with my mom, and her treat to me was we'd go to the deli, and she would get, she'd pay twenty five cents and get me imitation crab and and a little butter sauce, and that was like the greatest thing ever. Wait, as a representative is, of the crab community, we accept our tilapia brothers in arms and do not hold any prejudice against them. Right. They're, they are making the ultimate sacrifice. It's sort of like Chick-fil-A with their, you know, eat more chicken uh, motto. Um, the, isn't that what the cow says? Eat more chicken? Yeah, or the cows say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, solidarity with our uh, tilapia brothers and sisters. <laughs> I love it. That's hilarious. And that 25 cent little crab thing with the butter, it's only $8 now. So, you know, inflation right. has been really tame. <laughs> I had the same thought. I was like, 25 cents. They've really come for your favorite food, man. <laughs> uh, so nate hopefully you know we we got into dr jeff's you know wanted to get how things are going truly as a person before we ask him about macro now that we have done that uh dr jeff do you want to share with us any update what you're seeing in the macro landscape right now yeah and just about one quick thought before i do too um you know this violation tracker i'll tell you guys this is the power of marketing and and for all of the uh um uh, issues I have with the government for their inefficiencies and Ill inability to do anything well, uh, you know, much less okay. Um, they are fantastic marketers because what do most people think of Bitcoin? You know, most normies, they say, well, Bitcoin is used by criminals. And what do they think of with JP Morgan? Like, oh man, Jamie Dimon is awesome. Like banks, I trust banks, right? Look at how many violations they have committed and look at the violations on Bitcoin. And it's it's literally the exact opposite of how it's marketed. It just that kind of stuff drives me nuts. That's a great that's a great point. There's narrative control is is huge there. And uh, even though the you can look up the numbers, just like you said, Dr. Jeff, and and see how these these companies have done many, many things wrong and they've actually been penalized for it. Uh, the narrative control goes completely counter to that. Yeah, and 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 because it's so powerful in people's minds, they just don't care, right? You could see the front page headline on the Wall Street Journal today saying, you know, J.P. Morgan fined one billion dollars for money laundering. Nobody would care. Not a single person would leave J.P. Morgan uh, as their bank, uh, right? But you hear like one false article about how Bitcoin is used by criminals, or something about like Silk Road from 2012, and people are like, oh my goodness, it's so terrible and evil. Anyways. We don't have to go there. So that's the, that's uh, the crazier part is you have these fines going on with with Chase, and then like five, every five years, every ten years, they're just given money by the government, you know, via all of us to go buy whatever asset that's in distress. That's the hilarious part of it. They just have like some slush fund, like, hey, you guys, you you pay us this fine. We're just gonna keep it here for you because we're gonna give it back to you in about ten years. You're gonna have to buy X, Y, and Z, you know, company or, or asset off our books. It's just it's just comical. It's literally criminal. Like it, it's, I'm not, and not, that's not even being figurative. It's criminal activity and it's excused and promoted by the government and taken out of taxpayer dollars. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And like bank criminality has been so normalized. Like people read it on the front page and they'll like, yep, that's, that's what banks do. That's what banks do. Next page. <laughs> so true. But to, to Sam's point earlier, before we get to more macro topics, this, this is a, a kind of fair thing for people to use to say, well, instead of the banks being the ones to have all this uh, power and control and visibility into the monetary system, you know, maybe we should trust the government. And, you know, if we can get the right elected officials in there 
then you know they'll manage it better than Jamie Dimon for quote-unquote profits. I obviously don't believe any of that, but I think it is interesting because some people will come to that conclusion, and we don't have to unpack that now because this gets into a really long conversation about can you ever trust those people? What are their incentives to do a good job? But I do think it's interesting because people in this room will come to the determination of, okay, no one should control have that kind of control over the economy, over the monetary system, and that's why we're all passionate about Bitcoin. But other people will look at it and say, oh, yeah, like, I'll, let's have our elected officials control the system. Uh, so just, just something to be aware of. Okay, cool. So uh, let's, let's go into more macro topics. We'd love to hear from Dr. Jeff and Sam and Steven about what's on your mind. And uh, we will start with Dr. Jeff. Sure. So let's uh, start with my favorite uh, topic, and that's liquidity. Um, you know, if you look at all of the headlines and people's uh, Twitter lines uh, and feeds heading into the end of May, the, the number one topic for people of my ilk were, um, you know, what's going to happen with the debt ceiling resolution and the TGA, which is down to zero. The Treasury General account is going to need to be refilled. Won't that be a severe uh, contraction uh, of net liquidity? Uh, and, and people were very concerned about that and the effect on risk assets. And so my answer back then and, and, and what it still remains is, yes, that is uh, a net contractionary to liquidity, which is generally net negative for the you know, upside uh, performance of risk assets. But what I was saying back then and many other astute people were too much smarter than me, um, you know, that can be offset, though. How could it be offset? There's three components to net liquidity in the U.S. One is, you know, what is the Fed's balance sheet doing? Uh, they say they're in quantitative tightening uh, mode. Are they really? Uh, and then two, right, Treasury General account. And then third, the overnight reverse repo market. Um, and so so what has happened since then? So I like to go back. The, the two of those three metrics are updated once a week. Uh, on, we get the results on Thursday afternoon. Um, so we just got the, the um, most recent results, uh, weekly updated results, and they're good. I'm sorry, I'm kind of blathering, but they're good through Wednesdays, right? So, so Wednesday to Wednesday, and they're updated, and we get to see the results on Thursday afternoon. So what we just saw, and right before the debt ceiling was resolved, uh, I, I like to use May 31st, that Wednesday, uh, as the beginning marker, uh, until uh, just this last Wednesday, June 21st. Here's the metrics, and I posted it up in the nest. If you guys want to see, it's kind of just some quick back of the envelope math. Uh, it's it's probably off by you know a, a couple million, but but nothing major. So the Fed balance sheet since then, over the past three weeks, is down only 23 billion, uh, which is pretty small. And why is that? Because the bank term funding program continues to be used and implemented. So the, that those are liquidity patches, I consider. Uh, so those are actually counteracting the Fed's ongoing quantitative tightening. Uh, that's one. The second is the Treasury general account has been filled up significantly as uh, people surmised. It's up $228 billion over the last three weeks. That's a lot. Um, but the overnight reverse repo market has fallen by $217 billion, almost exactly the same amount. It's what, $11 billion difference uh, between the, the depletion of the overnight reverse repo market and the increase in the Treasury general account. So they basically offset each other. So net-net, since uh, May 31st through just this most recent Wednesday, um, net liquidity is only down $34 billion, basically, since the debt ceiling resolution. That's not much. So it sounds like a lot, but we're talking, normally we're talking hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. 
this is basically um, a blip uh, or a drop in the huge liquidity bucket. Um, so basically, why am I crabbish? It, uh, we're seeing it right now because liquidity is going sideways. And in fact, if you factor in uh, just the last two days because we get daily updates on the overnight reverse repo market, um, that's actually back down again. Uh, and so we're actually, since May 31st, we've actually added a little bit of liquidity to the economy. Um, and so I think that's why risk assets have been performing pretty well. And, and I think Bitcoin is the most sensitive of the liquidity assets. Uh, it definitely senses that. And it's finally catching a bid, despite all of the nonsense, right, with the SEC, Sue and Binance and, and uh, Coinbase. Uh, that held it back for a little bit. But now I think it's making up for lost time. And then my one more thing, and then I'll stop talking. Um, I still think the TA looks good, right? I've been expecting this breakout for quite a while. It took about a month longer than I thought it would for Bitcoin to start ripping. Um, to me, it looks like from a TA perspective that we may hang out around this 30K level for a few days. And then I would not be surprised to see it rip to uh, kind of its upper range and its next kind of uh, zone of, uh, of testing, which is kind of in the 37 to 40,000 range. Uh, so that's what I'm expecting. It could happen any day. It could be today, tomorrow, or maybe sometime next week. Obviously, I'm, 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 these are not predictions. This is just more probability-based the probabilities are to the upside for Bitcoin in the coming weeks. So I'm enthused about that. Dr. Jeff, can you elaborate on that a little bit more as to how you are um, kind of understanding why liquidity would be going sideways and has been in, in recent weeks, but Bitcoin seems to be uh, almost acting as if liquidity is going higher? Yeah, well, I think, John, because of suppressed price action, right, you get that ball underwater phenomenon. So so while liquidity was actually slightly creeping higher and, and tech stocks, right, tech stocks were catching the bid. Anything AI was catching the bid. Really reminiscent, by the way, of 99,000 with anything.com was catching a bid. So, so AI was catching that bid and Bitcoin was just creeping lower and being held down, I think, because of the SEC actions and confusion, right? Uh, you know, and what's going to happen to the Bitcoin on those balances? Is that really real Bitcoin? Blah, blah, blah. So to me, it was just a it, kind of the ball held underwater phenomenon. And it was building up, building up, building up, coiling pressure uh, and ready to shoot higher. And it's actually not unlike what it did back in mid-March, like March 9th, March 10th. It got just pushed way down and then it just sprang up and jumped from it hit a low of 19.7 way back on March 10th. It seems like forever ago. And within a week, it was up closer to like 28,000. And so I think we're just in the middle of that same kind of move. Like it wanted, it wants to go higher because of liquidity, but it was being sucked down for other reasons. Uh, and now is the time to explode higher. And it's basically uncorrelated, at least for the last 15 to 30 days with stocks. And um, so sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. But I think we're seeing the good side of that currently. I really like to imagine that like Dr. Jeff just delivered that whole great overview from like the broom closet in a hospital between shifts. <laughs> Steven, that's ser that's seriously not far off. I, I have done that before. I've done it. I've done updates from the bathroom in the hospital before. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm just like picturing you like you've been working at the hospital. You've been doing your doctor job. You're like, oh, my God, it's Cafe Bitcoin. I need to go. Tell them what's going on with macro. Also, not just that, but uh, making trades for in my fund too. Yeah, literally in the bathroom, you know, in between cases. I, it's I'm uh, I'm ashamed to say it. <gasps> that is that is hilarious. I want to know what your coworkers think of you if they overhear any of that conversation. He's just talking into his phone about crabs and liquidity. I, I don't get it. 
most people, I generally assume that most people think I'm crazy and I just kind of go with it. That's the way, man. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> so I, uh, I put a tweet up in the nest, which I just want to shout out as the best single sentence description of modern monetary theory I have ever read. Debt has the subjective lived experience of being money. <laughs> I really, really like that one. That is absolutely fantastic. Who came up with that? That's Alan. Alan Farrington. Oh, baby. That is that sounds like a classic Alan line. That is a banger. That is so good. Um, all right. I digress. <laughs> I really like that one. Uh, that is great. Um, Sam or Steven, anything you guys want to talk about? What's front of mind for you guys macro wise or, you know, you can make it as topical or long term focused as you want. I mean, I think right now we're in this like Goldilocks um, period. Like Dr. Jeff talked about the liquidity. There was all these like scares around the refilling of the TGA and it's turning out to be a rosy scenario where all that money is getting sucked out of the reverse repo facility, which doesn't take out bank reserves and doesn't act as a suction on liquidity out of the system. Um, so those, those like kind of worries are being alleviated. And like you said, liquidity still remains kind of sideways or supportive of risk assets. Um, and then at the same time, you have like, you know, you have the inflation data still rolling over. You had the Fed pausing. You have housing data coming in pretty resilient. It's kind of stabilizing um, after kind of coming down due to the rise of interest rates. You're seeing everything from house prices to housing starts, uh, permits. They're all kind of stabilizing um, over the last couple of months, um, which is obviously good for the outlook of the economy, at least in the short term. Um, but you still have like, I don't know, like there's still a lot of worries of the underlying economy, like you, you still have like PMIs in manufacturing are still in recessionary ter territory. It went in contracted deeper today. Um, you have a lot of the inflation is still elevated in the services in the core, and it's still not close to the Fed's target. So now Jerome Powell's coming out and saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to probably hike maybe in July." You have other central banks around the globe still hiking because um, inflation is remaining sticky. Um, you know, there's still concerns i think in the in the medium term um and how bitcoin will perform is anyone's guess in a more recessionary environment it's never really happened um you're seeing like the labor data it's still really resilient it's still strong but when you look at like some of the leading indicators like average work week um you know people are getting their hours cut or initial claims or continued claims they're kind of starting to rise up a little bit um but you're still seeing it's really strong and so I just think like right now we're in this optimistic time and it's like this Goldilocks scenario, like can things start to get worse later in the year or maybe the start of the year, like timing's so difficult, but there is still these like underlying concerns with the economy um, and some like cracks appearing. But right now, I mean, I just think <laughs> I, I'm pretty optimistic like Dr. Jeff. I mean, I, I think things could rip. I think the NASDAQ ripping this year has caught many people off guard. Um, and, and now you have a lot of investors who have been caught on the sidelines, who missed this rally, starting to kind of FOMO in and capitulate. Um, and we'll see how long it lasts, if this is really like a bear market rally, 
or if this is the beginning of a bull market. That's the big question. If it is a bear market rally, it's the longest in all of history. Um, it's like eight months, I think, uh, from the low. And that's longer than the one in the Great Depression. Um, so so that's kind of the big question right now. I'm just kind of like cautiously optimistic and still keeping track of some of this like economic data, some of these leading indicators. Um, but right now, times are good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something I'd add, and you know, something I've said before in Cafe Bitcoin and have thought about like as kind of like another angle on like data-driven approaches is I operate with like a kind of a simple heuristic that US assets need to go up over the long term or the system collapses. And I just operate with that one basic assumption. And so sure, assets can drop for a year or two years or whatever it is. And I think this amount of time that assets can drop gets shorter as time goes on because debt continues to build up in the system and leverage continues to build up in the system. And so, you know, maybe we could have a, you know, five-year bear market in the 70s, but I think that that number starts to decrease over time. Um, and so, you know, around, you know, prior to this rally, like I was saying, I think we're going to go up just because people want to buy assets. Like, that's it. Like, they've been sitting on the sideline and assets have gone down and Americans have been conditioned to buy assets and assets need to go up and, and people want assets to go up. A year bear market is fun and dandy and people trade and, ooh, they feel smart. They got into cash and, you know, but at the end of the day, people want to own assets and they're going to. So, you know, I, I, I just always like, unless we're looking at like the systematic collapse of U.S. financial markets, I assume assets will go up. And they don't, you know, truly, in a sense, I mean, obviously the reason is buying. But in some ways, like, I don't really care about the reasons. QQQ is up 37% on the year, which is uh, just pretty wild. Um, SPY up 15% on the year. My longer term theory has been that, yeah, I, I think you could definitely see these things go up in certainly in any short time frame um, and, and even in any particular year. If, if you look out the next 10, 10-ish years, let's just say any particular year, you know, U.S. stock markets could go up for sure. My general view is that we're not going to see the type of real returns over inflation that we saw for these instruments for the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, QQQ, the annualized 15-year return is 15% per year. Uh, SPY is 10%. And that's in an environment where inflation, uh, as in CPI, has been relatively, I'll say relatively muted, even though I am a big uh, stickler for when people say inflation was low for the last 15 years, I think that's really an unfair statement. I think CPI may have been quote unquote low, but there was inflation in things like equity markets, housing prices, college tuition, etc. Um, but even with that said, just on a relative basis, CPI obviously is way higher than it was and prices are going up more than they were uh, in the period, in the 10 years following the financial crisis, let's say. 
so I, I still maintain if you know if I was had to come up with a view on what U.S. stocks are going to do for the next ten-ish uh, years, I tend to think that in terms of outperforming inflation, they might they might do it, but it would be like low single-digit percentages, not the not the ten to fifteen percent that we saw for the last fifteen years. Yeah, John, to go to piggyback on what you're saying, I'm of the opinion that if we could somehow, you know, measure real inflation, right, you know, the shadow economic stuff, not CPI, that what we would see is that stocks barely keep up with inflation, if at all. And, you know, maybe the NASDAQ has barely outperformed real inflation, not CPI. Um uh, and so, so to me, if you just want to tread water over the next 10 years, we may see some really impressive nominal gains uh, because of printing and, and uh, you know, credit expansion that is just inevitable. It has to happen, uh, kind of to Stephen's point. Um, and so assets will increase. But if you factor out what that's really doing to the economy and the amount of credit ex expansion that's really going on underneath the hood that, that the government kind of hides from us in part, uh, I, I think that's just to tread water. You have to own these kind of assets. And if you want to actually get ahead in purchasing power terms, I mean, obviously I'm biased and obviously we're in a cafe Bitcoin uh, room, but I, I don't see really any other way to do it other than Bitcoin. If, if anybody else has any other ideas, you know, feel free to hit me up. <laughs> I uh, absolutely agree with you, uh, Dr. Jeff. Um, yeah, like these are all nominal returns. These are not like, I'm, I'm actually pretty skeptical of like real growth here. And I think that real growth has been low. And even some of what we're talking about, like, like even the ways we measure growth and what areas we measure growth in and is one unit of growth, one unit of growth, meaning like, you know, if we improve advertising algorithms, is that the same as inventing new, you know, nitrogen fertilizers? Like, uh, no. Right. So I'm actually pretty I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that we've been in. And I don't even think this is like a super contrarian take. I think Sam has talked about this, like, you know, economists would largely agree that growth really has been low. Um, but so, yeah, like these stock gains are nominal and like you're not you're not really getting ahead owning these assets. You're treading water. Yeah. And I, I could see, <clears throat> as Dr. Jeff kind of alluded to, I, I think it's fair to say that tech, you've gotten some real returns in tech, uh, just given the actual real world value that tech companies have provided in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, I just think going forward, it's not going to be as easy to say, I'll just put my money in this index fund and I'll make a significant real return over, over inflation. Um, Dr. Jeff, I wanted to ask you a question just about, you were talking about the TGA uh, and I was pulling up a chart of that. And it looks like, you know, it was <laughs> close to zero, which uh, we all were following at, during the debt ceiling showdown. And now it's been refilled to almost 300 billion. Have you seen uh, any um, stories or claims from people in the Treasury about how uh, high they expect to, to refill that in the near term? I, uh, I'm sure Stephen or Sam knows this. But I think it's 425 or 450. Um, I think they originally had said 500, and then they lowered it to 425. Matt's given me the 100. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it was. They expected 600 billion by the end of June, and now it's like 425. So that's yeah, another, Reuters I, I says 425. That like, that's another 
good thing for liquidity, right? Because it's it's not as much of a shock to the system if they did it really fast. And now it's it's happening slower than a lot of people predicted as well, which is another good thing. And is anyone up to speed on what kind of maturity profile they're issuing? I know that was kind of a big debate about will they issue shorter term uh, securities? Does anyone have anything to share on that? I think it's been almost all T-bills, unless somebody can correct me. I think everything has been a year or duration or less. Correct. Um, yeah, I think so. And then Joe Carlosari brought up this this announcement that was in the Financial Times way back on May 3rd, which I didn't even see. Uh, and, you know, putting our tinfoil hats on, we think that they didn't want us to see that, that the Treasury is actually apparently doing kind of an operation twist where they are buying back long dated bonds uh, from, you know, institutions uh, and then offering up these these new short dated um, T-bills, which to me is super interesting. And I, and I think what's even the most interesting is that nobody's talking about it. Like, why don't we see this on in the Wall Street Journal? Um because it's it's probably bailing out or uh, certainly giving a buffer, a cushion to the banks that they rely on, and uh, <laughs> you know you don't you don't uh, shit where you eat, as they say. Yeah, it's super interesting. I I wanted to bring up too, like Dr. Jeff, you, you brought up how the bank term funding program is being used more in recent weeks. Like, I feel like there's two ways to look at that. One is like it could be good for liquidity currently, but isn't that also a sign of like banks, um, you know, under distress that have to tap this program? Like in terms of like long-term help? Yeah, hundred percent, Sam. It means that, that there are more and more regional banks that are in highly stressed conditions right now. They're basically going with their last option before, you know, going under. But I think what's more important to the markets is it's showing that the Fed is bailing them out, right? They're like, sure, we'll take your super crappy debt and your terrible decisions and we'll just financialize all of it. We'll monetize all of it uh, and we'll just create more credit uh, to paper over it. So um, so it's like good and right. It's terrible for the regional banks. It shows that they're extremely unhealthy, but it also shows that the uh, greater, huger, much more important system is fully supporting them and uh, adding li liquidity. Yeah, it looks like new high recently reached, uh, if I'm looking at the latest data here, about $100 billion uh, in, this is an accurate way to frame it, uh, in distressed assets were redeemed at par this week. So for anyone following uh, along at home and needs a refresher on what the BTFP bank term funding program, this effectively allows the banks to act as if uh, rate increases did not happen. They own a security that they bought at a certain um, price, and that security fell significantly in price as interest rates rose. But the Fed says, don't worry about that. You can pledge those securities and we'll give you par for them. And there were some people who tried to say when this first came out, like, oh, uptake's not going to be that big. They're just, you know, this is just a small problem in the financial system. Uh, it's just a couple banks who are going to be tapping this. Um, and maybe that'll be the case. Maybe, you know, we'll peak and, and this will fall. Usage of this facility will fall. But so far, it's been, uh, it's been gradually increasing. Uh, it started at kind of around $50 billion, and it's been gradually increasing. And, and now it's over $100 billion. So definitely something to keep an eye on in terms of the, the health of the banking system. 
And I don't know how many of you remember, but around the time that First Republic went under, you had a lot of, uh, let's call it the TradFi scolds, um, basically saying, look, like 90% of the bank term funding program is all First Republic. And once they go under, utilization's going to vanish. It'll be gone. It's just them. And, well, the exact opposite happened. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and if I remember correctly, the Fed does not tell us who uses the program, at least not in the near term. I think there might have been some expiration where they say, like, don't quote me on this, but I, I thought I heard something. It was like a year down the road. They might say who's using the program. And I guess they'll defend it by saying, well, we don't want to you know, create a run on the bank and whatever, whatever. Uh, but at the same time, it's also like think, think about what they're effectively telling people. If, if the banking system, if your deposits are at risk of uh, a bank run, which in, in reality, they are at risk of a bank run. People say, oh, you're you know, supposed to analyze the bank and choose a safe bank and, and do your diligence. Right. But then at the same time, they're like, oh, by the way, if your bank is tapping into this emergency program that we just created, like we're not even going to tell you that your bank is tapping into it. So to, to me, it's just kind of ridiculous that they expect people to be able to you know, do this kind of research when some of the some of the data you would want to know is just quite literally hidden from you. Mike, it is you, act, go ahead, Jeff. The more, the more you think about it, the more outraged you should become. Like, it's incredible what they're doing. Like, right, they're, they're, they're keeping from the general public who they're benefiting. They're literally saving banks. Uh, like, like, you know, Silicon Valley, they say, basically, you could argue to save uh, the venture capitalists and other huge firms that were reliant on that bank. So they broke their own rules and went above the 150,000 FDI deposit insurance. Uh, it, they, they do all of this. They're supposed to be uh, apolitical. It's not some private, uh, you know, private company saving some other private company. It's it's literally taxpayer uh, dollars, and I shouldn't say taxpayer. It's inflationary dollars paying for this, right? They're expanding mm -hmm. credit. They're basically all of the people are once again covering these failing institutions, and it's the central bank directing them to do so. And it's just the craziest scheme, right? Where the rich just keep getting richer. They never ever lose. You can make the stupidest bet and buy just you know billions of dollars of long dated treasuries at zero percent interest rate, and if you and if it goes against you, you get bailed out. And how do they get bailed out? Not by the government. It's the government taking money from the citizens and taking purchasing power from the citizens to bail them out. It's just criminal. It's just unbelievable this system. So, anyways, uh, uh, stack stats. Stay humble. <laughs> no, totally. And just running with that for a second. If you imagine this happened in another industry, like whatever it is, I don't know, car, car manufacturers, like an industrial uh, industry, nothing to do with the financial sector. And just imagine that there's a bunch of companies that exist in this industry, and some of them come on hard times, and some government entity creates a program that's like, hey, if you come on hard times, just like come to us, we'll give you a sweetheart deal. And by the way, the money we use, we're just going to create it out of thin air and you will benefit from it. Oh, and by the way, like we're not even going to tell the public which companies in the industry are benefiting from this new program that we just made up. Uh, that is quite literally what's happening. And uh, as Dr. Jeff said, if 
if that infuriates you, uh, then I think you are understanding what's going on here. Yeah. One last thing. I mean, it's, it's stealing purchasing power from people who did not make stupid decisions and giving it to those who did. And I just, I, the system is so deeply corrupt from the inside out. It, it just needs to get flushed down the toilet, like the giant turd that it is. <laughs> quick, quick little market update. Bitcoin new 52 week high and still the king. 38 to 40 K is the next target. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, that, um, that's the yeah, cafe Bitcoin it, it, pump. <laughs> yeah, this is I'm, Wait, uh, so, uh, to Dr. Jeff's point. You're, you're absolutely right. The inflationary dollars, this is, this is debasement by other means. And the takeaway that I see is, once again, deba- debasement is bipartisan. Um, it, you're right. It got reported on. Uh, I guess even the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, had an article and no attention, no traction, no outrage. Uh, no, nothing because um, there, there's no apparently there's no opponents, at least not in public office. What's going on, everybody? Bitcoin Chris checking in with you guys. You know, normally we usually do a smash buy on a Friday. Um, you know, typically that's what we always do. So if you guys care to join me in a smash buy at all time or well, not all time, but a 52 week highs, we I would love for you guys to join me in a smash buy. Um, also I would like to just say, you know, back in the day in 20, 2008, right. You know, the banks got bailed out by Barack Obama, you know, and 80% of the, of the population did not want that to happen, you know? So we have to understand that they never are going well, to do George W. Bush. It was Obama who passed that. If I'm Bullshit. Not Bullshit. <laughs> I was there in 2008 on wall street, <laughs> massive bailout by the U S government, including, George W. Bush, that's actually a big reason why he did not get reelected because McCain-Palin was doing really well. And then we had Lehman. Absolutely. It just shows the corruption of, you know, our our government and our system. You know, on top of that, you know, we had the Goldman Sachs debacle, right, where you had the insiders, you know, giving out um, junk mortgages, right, to minority groups. And, you know, we're shorting those junk mortgages and made over, I think it was $8 billion. Or four billion. I forgot the exact numbers. I actually posted a video about this as well. So, you know, it's been such a long time that we seem to forget, you know, the the corruption of our governments. And then, like Dr. Jeff was saying, you know, they just get a they get a slap on the wrist. They get a they get a small fine, as many of you guys were saying. And then they continue to do the same thing. So, you know, it, it should infuriate you. It, you should be pissed off. And you know, complaining about it is really not going to be the choice and the, the the solution to the to the problem. The the solution to the problem is to buy Bitcoin. So. Just want to go ahead and drop my two Satoshis on that and, you know, make sure you smash my happy Friday, everybody. I love that. Chris, can I just add on to that real quick? Like that's one of the best lessons Jeff Booth has taught me, by the way. I was just telling my wife about this yesterday. He, he instead of complaining about it, because like, right, I'm I'm like enraged. I'm kind of shaking and I'm sweating a little bit right now. <laughs> and it's your guys' fault for getting me talking about this stuff. But to Chris's point and to Jeff Booth's point, instead of complaining about our current system, start building a better system. Put your time and your efforts and your passions into building a parallel, much far superior monetary and financial system and help build a better world. We may not get to experience all of it. You know, I'm old. I may be dead before I see, you know, lots of the implications of this and the fruits of this, but our kids will and our grandkids will. And so just build a better, better world instead of complaining about the current one. Sorry, I'll stop talking. No, that's, no, that's, that's well put. I mean, so often we are frustrated noticing problems 
in our daily lives or in our in our um, uh, places we live or places we work, but unable to fix them, unable to correct them on our own. But this is one area where you see debasement, you see unfunded bailouts, you notice that it seems to be bipartisan. It's just new administration does the exact same thing on a larger scale, but you have a solution and that solution is Bitcoin. Chris, I just did a smash buy. Let's go. And one last thing, I do want to uh, just make an announcement. Um, being surrounded by so many, you know, smart individuals, you know, here in Cafe Bitcoin and, you know, also on Clubhouse for the past three years, right? I took a little break because, you know, I was on there every day, would fall asleep on Clubhouse and wake up and, you know, smash by and party with the crew. But, you know, taking that little hiatus, you know, I know a lot of great authors, a lot of businessmen. Um, shout out to Corey. Shout out to everybody here in the room. I've I'm actually, um, I'm an author now. I'm actually writing a book called Bitcoin Dad, Fiat Dad. I'll put it in the uh, nest above. If you guys want to pre-order, please feel free to do so. If not, that's okay. But it's just pretty much my perspective of being a dad, you know, and being caught up in the fiat system and understanding the difference between, you know, high time preference and low time preference and would love the support. And, you know, I'm just happy to be able to, to write this book to inspire and to orange pill a lot more people. Right on. Thanks for sharing all that, Chris. Appreciate it, man. All right. We are, we are at 12 noon here. So I'm just going to share something about this idea of an alternate system versus, you know, I'll call it complaining or even, even lobbying or this kind of broader category of, you know, just talking about it versus actually building an alternative system. And you guys reminded me of uh, Tom Woods. You guys may be familiar with that name. Uh, he's kind of into economics, politics. He's definitely more of a libertarian, limited government type guy. He had someone on the pod on his podcast in the last few years to talk about uh, Bitcoin, uh, or no, actually, it wasn't even about Bitcoin. But he made the example that uh, he used Uber, and I'm I'm not trying to like pump up Uber here or anything, but I think it's a good example that if you had a bunch of libertarians, you know, writing books and articles and talking about how. The Taxi Limousine Commission in New York City, for example, was not uh, good for consumers. And, you know, it's this kind of protected government-run uh, oligopoly and, you know, costs go up and quality goes down and range of selection goes down. You can say all that and, and you, you'd be accurate. But it, to actually get through to people, to make people see that, the creation of Uber showed people that in the real world way, way better than a bunch of libertarians who, you know, wrote a book about it and talked about it again, even if they were accurate. So I just think that's an example of building the alternate system in reality and people seeing it for themselves is going to be way, way more powerful than, uh, you know, just academically talking about it. And that's not to take, I'm not trying to completely bash, you know, academically talking about things, academic exercises, those are important, but it can't stop there. You, you actually need the, the thing in real life to, uh, to show people that there is an alternative system. So anyway, um, speaking of that, yeah, go ahead, Mike. I, I, um, I just, just to, to, uh, t cap things off with the macro discussion and leading off of what you just said, um, the third tweet to the right. So like after, uh, Chris's, um, book tweet and then after Matt's price action update, um, I, I put in the nest a link to the report from the IMF that came out yesterday that they are um, essentially capitulating on their position against 
whether they can regulate away Bitcoin and prevent countries from utilizing Bitcoin as legal tender like El Salvador. So if any of you guys are interested in reading that, I provided the link in the tweet that's at the desk. Awesome, man. Thank you for, thank you for doing that. Um, check, check that out. If you guys are interested in that, we are past 12 noon here. I will just throw it up to, uh, anyone on stage. We won't do formal closing comments here, but does anyone have something that, they want to leave the group with. Can I go real quick? I got bumped off my internet towers. Um, I just want to remind everybody that this this BTFP program has a two percent rate on it. So technically, it is QT in the long term, and it it, it does kind of follow with the mandate, but it is soaking up a lot of assets in the short term because they are used as collateral. I, I don't want that to be missed in this whole ranting complaint session we're kind of having here. I don't, I mean, fuck the Fed anyway, but like we should, we should be honest about it. Wait, what am I missing? A 2% rate makes it still technically tightening? Right, what, because what they're pulling missing? liquidity out. They're put, it's pulling liquidity out of the system in the end. We might have that, to uh, save lengthy. that for another time. Go, go ahead, Sam. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That was the QT, QE, whether that's the BTFP program. Danielle DiMartino Booth talks about this at length. I mean, no, we, no, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, we could, we could get into a whole new spaces on, on real <laughs> versus nominal. That's true. There's a lot of nuance. I don't know. I, I see both sides of the argument. But I, I was going to talk about the BTFP too, because what's interesting is if, if inflation does remain more stickier and then the Fed does have to hike interest rates, it just worsens the, the balance sheet issue with these banks, uh, you know, the duration that they have um, if they just keep hiking rates. And so that's why the Fed's in a tricky spot because if inflation stays sticky um, and they have to raise rates, well, that worsens the banking problem for these regional banks. And so if that happens, and I expect the BTFP to be, continue to get tapped it's the better to keep raising rates. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, maybe, maybe next week we'll, we could do more on the BTFP. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we have our gripes with it. But uh, yeah, fair to say that we, we did not do a deep dive and cover every single aspect and nuance of, of the BTFP today. Um, okay, we're, we're past noon here, so we're going to wrap it there. For, for anyone who is, is still here and uh, not a regular listener, the normal host of Cafe Bitcoin is the great Alex Stanzik. I am John Har, part of the Swan private team. Sam and I kind of have been rotating, hosting on Fridays, uh, filling in for Alex, giving him a little bit of a break, but he'll be back with you guys on Monday. Hope everybody enjoyed the show. Uh, stack sats, stay crabby, and uh, enjoy the weekend, everyone. <laughs>